It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Wowza, I have so much to get to today from Cuomo to COVID to CPAC. All right, I have a fatal weakness for alliteration. Uh, but I want to start with some good news, by the way. Hope you had a good weekend. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. All the segments are online, Twitter, Facebook, easy to find. Uh, the good news is that Lady Gaga's dogs are back and she didn't have to pay the $500,000 reward. I mean, this is actually a very uh, sad and disturbing story where, you know, these assailants actually shot the guy who, whose name is Ryan Fisher, who walks her dogs, kidnapped two of the dogs. Uh, and everybody on the planet, including me, assumed that, you know, they had scoped out the situation. They knew these were Lady Gaga's dogs and maybe they're going to hold them for ransom or whatever. But TMZ, which is very good on this, uh, you know, on the streets, California reporting, uh, is quoting law enforcement and other sources as saying that it may have been that these perpetrators didn't know they were Lady Gaga's dogs, that the dog walker, Ryan Fisher, had been hanging out with the dogs at a local uh, liquor uh, store on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Um, and um, they might have got a look at the dogs and might have determined their breed and might have thought, well, if we can get these dogs, we could sell them for many thousands of dollars. Uh, TMZ says, we've learned LAPD detectives have gone to the store to obtain the surveillance tapes. Um, cops initially believed the target may well have been Gaga. There's now a real possibility the perpetrators could have seen Ryan on Sunset Boulevard, scoped out the dogs, followed him to a dark residential street. Still a horrifying tale. And Lady Gaga uh, has offered, of course, as she should, to pay about $100,000 in medical bills for her dog walker, um, who I guess is in stable condition. What a horrifying ordeal. Um, Marty Barron has just finished up his uh, seven-year tenure as executive editor of the Washington Post. What's fascinating here is the Post, understandably, um, you know, has a big piece on how Marty Barron, former editor of the Boston Globe, former editor of the Miami Herald, helped turn the Washington Post around and turn it into a national newspaper and a digital powerhouse with Jeff Bezos' money, how the two of them did this. But there's also a very similar and extremely positive story in the New York Times, uh, painting the uh, Post as a kind of a success story. Um, that's great because it's hard to deny that the paper, you know, the paper was going through all these rounds of layoffs and buyouts and the Graham family, which I love, you know, was just having trouble keeping it afloat. And they were having to cut and cut. And finally, Bezos comes in. Whatever you think of Jeff Bezos or whatever you think of the Washington Post, you know, comes in with $250 million of his own money and spends a lot of money. There are now more bureaus. There's more reporting. The staff has gone from under 600 to 1,000, putting it closer to the league of the New York Times, which has always been the much bigger paper. I think the Times newsroom is about 1,300. But... Um, Good for the Times for recognizing that, you know, one of its chief rivals uh, has thrived in recent years. All right. Oh, I got a lot to say about these stories. So let's just get right down to business. Story number one, CPAC. I mean, what a buildup uh, for Donald Trump's speech yesterday. And by the way, there's a straw poll. You know, this is a very conservative conference, obviously, and the most conservative people participate in the straw poll. 68% say they want Donald Trump to run again for president in 2024. Uh, even though he has a 97% a job approval rating among those who went to Orlando for this conference. The other 32% either said Trump shouldn't run or had no opinion. So that's significantly lower than I would expect. 
Don't know exactly why. More on that in a moment. But I got to tell you, just watching this thing live, first of all, you know, it was the same Trump. He was cocky. He was funny. He was entertaining. It's not for nothing that, you know, all those Trump rallies used to get big ratings even before he was president. I mean, the guy is, first and foremost, an entertainer. He comes out of reality TV. But it was just really striking, almost like a deja vu, to watch him with a great sense of confidence, you know, uh, talking up his accomplishments of his administration, which he has every right to do, attacking Biden, more on that in a second. And yet, this is the first time we've seen him since January 20th, you know, calling in to a couple of shows to talk about Rush Limbaugh's uh, passing doesn't count, as a former president. And so he's saying all the same thing, hitting all the applause lines, fighting the cultural war battles, and yet he doesn't have the power anymore. And it was such a flashback uh, to all of the times when we, we saw Trump as president, because we saw him every day. I mean, the guy never took a day off. If he wasn't on TV, he was tweeting. If he wasn't tweeting, he was doing interviews or talking to the press corps while attacking the press corps. And here was Donald Trump having to, you know, in effect, acknowledge that he's no longer president. Now, the shots that he took in Biden, saying that Joe Biden had the most disastrous first month of any president in modern history, he went on and on and on. You would think that Joe Biden has superpowers because he's managed to ruin the entire country in just about five weeks. I mean, how could he do it so quickly? You know, of course, he went through, he doesn't like Biden's policy on immigration, doesn't like Biden rejoining the WHO, he doesn't like Biden rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, because they're all things that Biden has done to reverse Trump policies. But that's why we have elections. It's exactly what Donald Trump did to reverse many of Barack Obama's policies. Uh, but, the, you know, what was fascinating is most of CPAC, most of the speakers, and there were a lot of big name conservative speakers, senators and others, uh, even former administration officials, former Trump administration officials. There's very little talk of Biden. There's a lot of talk about issues and ideology and culture stuff. Very little talk of Biden. And um, one of the papers interviewed a guy who, you know, they have like a concession stands there. He's saying, I can't give the Biden merchandise away. The Biden merchandise was all, you know, stuff attacking Joe. And what that says to me is the conservative movement and the Republicans on the Hill but now with the obvious exception of Donald J. Trump, have just not found a way to demonize Joe Biden because he hasn't gone totally left-wing. Is he pursuing a, a liberal agenda? Absolutely. Um, but he he's not he's hard to demonize because he's been around so long. He is an empathetic guy. And I think this is the reason Joe Biden won the presidency. Donald Trump and the Republicans couldn't demonize him into this dark, a uh, horrible figure who is just going to impose socialism on every corner of American society. Maybe that will get easier the more Biden is in office. Um, and so they had to kind of revert to he's a doddering, you know, stuttering, not very with it character. And uh, Trump went there a little bit yesterday saying he thinks when, when Biden, Biden misspoke at that CNN town hall and said there were no vaccines when I came in. Of course he knows there were vaccines. He got one. But he's saying there wasn't much of a vaccine plan. There weren't very many doses available. Um, so Trump said, you know what? I don't think Biden was trying to be malicious. I don't think he knows what's going on. So defaulting to the old Sleepy Joe is, is kind of out of it business. Um, among the fascinating aspects of uh, the Trump speech was, of course, he reprised the stolen election business. You knew he would. He couldn't help himself. 
he said, uh, you know, um, Biden, the most, most uh, you know, Biden's trying to erase all my policies, my good policies. Actually, as you know, they just lost the White House. Well, actually, you're in Mar-a-Lago and Joe Biden is living, is working in your old Oval Office. But who knows? I might even decide to beat them for a third time, meaning if he ran in 2024 and won, he would have won in 2016. He would have won in 2020, except, you know, uh, the voting machines and the, uh, the mail-in ballots and all of that. Uh, so he's still sort of in denial on that. Oh, by the way, back to that straw poll. Uh, without, I guess there was a second version of it without Trump as an option. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis leading the field with 43%. I guess he's become a real rock star on the right uh, over COVID and other issues. And so you got to give him credit for that. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, 11%. Mike Pence, uh, 1%, even with Trump not in the polls. So I guess he's no longer a conservative favorite. Now in the speech, now in the speech, Trump actually ticked off the names of all these Republicans who voted against him on impeachment in the House and the Senate. Uh, he reserved a special uh, anger for Liz Cheney, calling her a warmonger. Uh, he went after Mitch McConnell, uh, who obviously gave that speech after voting to acquit Trump in the impeachment trial over the Capitol riot. Um, the only he, this was this was interesting. Trump says there's no, there's unity in the Republican Party that this is a media myth, it's fake news, and there were a lot of shots at the fake news and they're not us and all that. The only division is between the Washington, D.C. political hacks and everyone else. Of course, the political hacks are the Senate Republican leader, the number three Republican in the House, and other people. We want Republican leaders who are loyal to the voters. He actually wants Republican leaders who are loyal to him. Um, oh, and then he says, on behalf of moms, dads, and children of America, I call on Joe Biden to get the schools open and get the schools open now except that Donald Trump couldn't get the schools open because no president has the power to order that. Most schools are under local control, either state control, city control, or county control. Um, He went after the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, again, didn't have the guts or the courage to to do anything about it, and neither did other judges. Again, this is about the election. The Supreme Court has a 6-3 conservative majority. Three of the nine justices are Donald Trump appointees, and he's saying they have no guts and they have no courage. Well, Trump was back. The CPAC people loved him. And uh, also he went off on the virus uh, distribution. And also he went off on uh, protections for people who are transgender and how this affects women's sports and how unfair that is. You know, Trump always had this ear for what would be popular among conservatives when it comes to uh, cultural issues. I mean, it's not saying it's not a legitimate issue to discuss, but it was about 90 minutes, sort of a tour de force, Greatest hits. At one point, he said, what is Trumpism? And he tried to define it. Um, Fox News carried the speech live. MSNBC and CNN did not. But, of course, they're spending a lot of time talking about it today and, I'm sure, last night as well. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, turning out to story number two, Andrew Cuomo. And there's there have been a lot of developments over the weekend, which I'm going to delve into in great depth. But the most fascinating thing is the media. I was on the soapbox on Media Buzz yesterday. I wrote a column about this last week. I talked about it on the air. That most, much of the mainstream media did not want to cover uh, the accusations by the first accuser, Lindsay Boylan. She wouldn't talk to the press, but she wrote this 1,700-word piece on Medium talking about how Andrew Cuomo uh, gave her an unwanted kiss on the lips 
uh, how he said, let's play strip poker and made other inappropriate comments. Just to recap this, no coverage on the network evening newscasts. Four sentences on the Today Show. Until Sunday, one 39-second item on CNN. That was it. That was the entire coverage of the accusation against the Democratic governor of New York. Um, MSNBC had these sort of readers, you know, where the anchor would just read a couple paragraphs, but, you know, no guests, no segments devoted to it. The media just didn't want to deal with this. They like Andrew Cuomo. They think he's been a great governor. They've made him into a media darling, and this didn't fit the narrative. But one exception to that is the New York Times. And so on Saturday night, the Times dropped this bombshell. A second accuser in a series of interviews with the Times-Albany correspondent Jesse McKinley, who sought out a woman named Charlotte Bennett, who had posted something very brief on Twitter supporting uh, what Lindsay Boylan had said. So Jesse McKinley of the New York Times, you know, left-leaning newspaper, nevertheless, the New York Times is the same paper that knocked Elliot Spitzer, another Democratic governor, out of office with its reporting. He resigned after its reporting, this is uh, 12 years ago, on his involvement with prostitutes and so forth. But on this Andrew Cuomo story, the things that Charlotte Bennett had to say were really, really striking. In fact, impossible to ignore. She said that the governor told her he was lonely. She was 25 years old. This is just last spring during the pandemic. He's lonely. He broke up with his girlfriend. He hadn't hugged anybody in a long time. Uh, he asked questions about her love life. He asked if she'd ever slept with older men. The governor is 63. Um, Charlotte is 25. Um, and she says, quote, I understood that the governor wanted to sleep with me and felt horribly uncomfortable and scared and was wondering how I was going to get out of it and assumed it was the end of my job. And she didn't just belatedly say this. She went to two top state officials and complained about Andrew Cuomo's behavior toward her. Uh, He never touched her, by the way. There's no allegation that he touched her. But he made clear, according to Charlotte Bennett, that he wanted to sleep with her. And... um, What's happened now is, now today for the first time, I'm seeing longer stories and segments and interviews on the other cable news channels. Now it's too big to ignore. And this is the problem with just sort of burying your head in the sand and not covering the early stages of a scandal. Because there are other actors, other politicians weigh in. People get asked about it. They write letters. And then new evidence may emerge. Not always, but often. And then you find yourself playing catch-up. So now uh, the network's... Uh, that didn't cover this or barely covered it or covered it like holding their nose, they now look stupid. They now look like they didn't want this to be a story. They wanted the Andrew Cuomo narrative as the hero of the pandemic. And of course, the nursing home scandal and the withholding of the uh, figures on the deaths in nursing homes is a whole other story. So Cuomo was already on the defensive. And this is how you know this has absolutely become a major league problem for the third term governor. First, you know, with Charlotte Bennett, he put out a kind of a mild statement saying, well, I certainly, I tried to be a mentor to her. She was a sexual assault uh, survivor. She told me about that. I certainly didn't intend any harm. Well, now, this is last night, Andrew Cornell put out for him uh, a highly unusual apology. I mean, Andrew Cuomo was one of these uh, tough guy politicians who does not like to apologize. And now he says, I now understand that my interactions may have been insensitive or too personal and that some of my comments, given my position, made others feel in ways I never intended. I acknowledge some of the things I have said have been misinterpreted 
as an unwanted flirtation. To the extent anyone felt that way, I am truly sorry about that. So now you have the governor of New York apologizing for conduct. We didn't know the full extent because we only had the first accuser. For conduct, misconduct, I should say, that most of the media said, "Ah, you know what, this isn't a big deal. We're not really going to cover it. We'll just mention it. We'll just briefly mention it. And also, Cuomo has, has to back off twice now on how this should be investigated. He called for a review, but first he said that the New York Attorney General and the chief judge of, the New, York's, of New York's highest court, which is the state Supreme Court, should together pick um, an investigator. That was his second position. His first position was naming some, I think, former judge who, he had, who, who had a good relationship with one of Cuomo's friends. So that person didn't look impartial. Okay, so he backs off. But the problem is he appointed the highest, the judge who runs the highest court, and that wasn't acceptable. So now he's completely thrown up his hands and says, okay, the New York State Attorney General, who's a Democrat, Letitia James, who's been on Cuomo over the nursing home scandal, you decide whatever you want to do. So he's just completely given up. So he had to back off his position twice. He had to issue an apology. He had to say he was insensitive. He had to say he was sorry. Never intended. Uh, could be interpreted as flirting. Well, what else would you intend it as? If you're asking a young woman if she's ever slept with a guy, a much older guy, and said that you'd do it too, as long as she was over 22. So this story is far from over. There are certain Democrats calling for Cuomo to resign. There are other Democrats calling for Cuomo to be impeached. I'm not sure either of those things are going to happen. This is a guy with a rock-solid base. Um, but the story has changed. And Jen Psaki, uh, the White House press secretary, was about, asked about this on CNN State of the Union. And she said these allegations are serious. Of course, every woman should be heard. And then she said it was hard to read that story as a woman. And, of course, Bill de Blasio, who's been feuding with uh, Cuomo for years, the mayor piling on, that has to denouncing this, has to be a complete investigation. Cuomo's problem here is that he's pissed off a lot of Democrats, not just de Blasio, a lot of Democrats in Albany. So there's not a lot of uh, Democrats who are rushing to defend him. And, by the way, even if they wanted to, I think it would be hard in this situation to defend him. Um, and so that amounts to um, a very difficult situation uh, that the media, the mainstream media now fully embracing that Andrew Cuomo is in trouble. Story number three, I talked about this a little bit on the podcast on Friday. Um, Washington Post reporter Sung Min Kim, uh, just doing her job, uh, saw Senator Lisa Murkowski in the hallway, asked her about uh, Neera Tandon's tweets about her, because Senator Murkowski is like the only remaining Republican who might uh, agree to uh, confirm uh, President Biden's nominee to run OMB, despite all of her mean tweets about people in both parties, including Bernie. And so Murkowski says, well, I don't know about this. And, and Kim had printed out the tweet about Murkowski, about your high and your own supply, showed it to her. And for that, she's been absolutely savage by the left online. Absolutely savage for doing her job. I mean, this is, you know, you know how many times I've done this where I've called up somebody in a view, well, have you seen the letter that so-and-so sent to the State Department or have you seen the president's statement? Have you seen this? And the person says no. And I said, okay, let me read it to you or I'll email it to you because I want you to know what I'm talking about so you can comment on the story. It's called reporting, folks. So Maureen Dowd had a terrific column yesterday on this subject using this as an example. And I know a lot of people view Maureen as, you know, a liberal columnist for a liberal newspaper. And she was extremely tough on Donald Trump, and she was extremely tough on George W. Bush and uh, Dick Cheney. But she also used to drive Bill Clinton crazy, uh, especially with his sexual harassment and sexual scandals. Uh, 
And uh, she used to make fun of Obama. She used to call him Barry. Anyway, regardless of what you think of Maureen Dowd, listen to this. She's been waiting for the moment when someone on the left would react indignantly to journalists doing their job. It was so enthralling and gratifying, says Maureen, to assail Donald Trump as a liar and misogynist that it was bound to be jarring when the beast slouched out of town and liberals had to relearn the lesson that reporters don't or shouldn't suit up for the blue team. So now she talks about Sun Min Kim, her email and social media feeds inundated with racist and sexist, sexist comments. She's Asian American. Um, all because, you know, she seemed to be helping a senator torpedo Neera Tandon's nomination. One person in this comp called Kim a snitch for supposedly messing up another person of color nomination on behalf of whites because Neera Tandon is Indian, of Indian American descent. That is not her job, this person says, and it's entirely inappropriate. And Maureen says, actually, yes, that is her job. The truth is many on the left don't understand what a reporter is. You know, reporters have been treated as superheroes, part of the resistance in going after Trump for four years. Liberals lionized any cable host and runaway Republicans who blasted Trump, even if they'd previously been on the GOP payroll selling the Iraq war and Sarah Palin. Let's be honest. It's a lot more pleasant, says Maureen Dowd, to be hailed by the left and demonized, as you are during periods when you're holding a Democratic president to account, because the left can be just as nasty as the right. And that's true. It's absolutely true. And maybe the left is even more nasty because the left has this conception that reporters are left-leaning, and therefore they should be on the team, and they should look the other way, and they should soft-pedal anything that's bad. And reporters aren't supposed to do it. Now, do some reporters do that? Yeah. And some reporters seem to be doing that with Joe Biden. But I don't think uh, all reporters are doing that. I don't think the New York Times did this in the case of Andrew Cuomo. I don't think that Sung Min Kim did this in the case of Neera Tandon. And by the way, uh, I don't have time to go into it now, but I said on the air, that, and I've talked about this on Friday, that the media uh, are really, many in the media, many liberal, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, editorials, are, are condemning Joe Biden, condemning the new president for his handling of the Saudis in regard to the brutal killing of Jamal Khashoggi. So Maureen weighing in on that. Uh, story number four, The Atlantic. You know, I did my lead on Media Buzz uh, and wrote a column on this last week about how there's a backlash on the right led by the Federalist, National View, and others um, against the what is seen as the pessimism of President Biden and Anthony Fauci in terms of coronavirus lockdowns continuing and unwillingness to say, hey, you know, by the summer we'll be fine, everybody who wants it will be vaccinated and we can open things up. And of course, it's a balancing act, you know, because you don't want another surge. You don't want people to um, give up too soon on social distancing and masks. That's happened before. I get all that. But here's a piece from the liberal magazine, The Atlantic, that's basically agreeing with the conservative critique. And I have some sympathy for it as well. The Atlantic says that, you know, once we got these vaccines, these two vaccines, and of course, Johnson & Johnson approved by the FDA over the weekend, so now we have a third vaccine. But it said there were no great stories in the press. This is amazing. It's miraculous because, you know, Pfizer and Moderna have now come up with this vaccine that protects, gives 95% protection against the dreaded, deadly, and dastardly coronavirus. Those stories never appeared. They were more like matter-of-fact stories because it was right after the election and all the politics were still going on. And therefore, says the Atlantic writer, instead of balanced optimism, 
there's been the public has been fed a lot of misguided feelings over virus variants, subjected to misleading debates about the inferiority of certain vaccines, and presented with a long list of things that vaccinated people still cannot do. The pessimism is sapping people of energy to get through the winter and the rest of this pandemic. And, uh, Atlantic talks about anti-vax groups and all of that. Moderna reported, uh, so Pfizer reports 95% efficiency. Moderna reports 94.5% efficiency. If anything, that provided more cause for celebrations as the Atlantic because it confirmed the stunning numbers from Pfizer were in a fluke. But amid the political turmoil, the Moderna report got a mere two columns on the New York Times front page with an equally modest headline, another vaccine appears to work against the virus. So we didn't get our moment of vaccine jubilation. And then, now that we're vaccinating people, articles started warning newly vaccinated people about all they could not do. Here's a headline, one headline, COVID-19 vaccine doesn't mean you can party like it's 1999. And the buzzkill has continued right up to the present. And I think that's a problem. Again, there is a balance to be struck here. We can't all go party like it's 1999. For one thing, you know, we, don't, we still only have um, a relatively small fraction of the population vaccinated. But also, people who have, the vac- have been vaccinated, they can still carry the virus to other people, so it does make sense to wear a mask. And we can't get out of control and completely do away with social distancing because the pandemic, the, the, the numbers have come down greatly, but they're still pretty high and they seem to have leveled off. A lot of days, 2,000 Americans are still dying from the coronavirus. A lot of days, there are still a lot of new cases. Not as bad as January, not as bad as last November. So it calls for some balance, but it calls for the media not to be overtaken by pessimism. Because if people get too pessimistic, either they say the hell with it, and we have to recognize the cost of the restrictions. The 10 million people out of work. The small businesses that are either going under or hanging by a thread. The kids are still not back in the classrooms. That's why I want to continue to talk about this. And finally, story number five. A lot of focus on the Golden Globes last night. There were a lot of interesting winners. The most interesting thing, I thought, were the co-host, Tina Fey, Amy Pollan, taking on the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which is the one that hands out the Golden Globes. Now, this picked up, talk about the value of newspapers. It was a Los Angeles Times investigation into exactly what is and who makes up the Hollywood Foreign Press Press Association, 87 members. And it turns out, according to this LA Times investigation, they have no, as in zero, as in none, no black members, not one. Uh, What century are we in? What are we talking about here? So um, Tina and Amy came out there and they said, this is pretty bad. Um, Amy Poehler said, look, a lot of flashy garbage got nominated, that happens. But she said, but a number of black actors and black-led projects were overlooked. Not all. There were some shows with black actors that got recognized. But they called out the group that gives out the awards that they are in charge of emceeing. And I give them, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, a lot of credit for that. And then, you know, this lame statement came out from the HFPA. Uh, Oh, um, we recognize we have our own work to do. We must have black journalists in our organization, said a vice president. You think? Did that not occur to you before? That you have 87 members of a group that purports to be to give awards on all movies? Even with all the black actors and actresses and producers and directors out there? And you've got zero? And you say we have work to do? I mean, this is not like underrepresentation. This is no representation. 
And how do we not know this? I mean, kudos to the LA Times, but how does this never come out before? Because it's a kind of the secretive group, I guess. So that was um, the politics of the Golden Globes. Uh, I'm glad it wasn't uh, a Bass Trump fest as it has been in recent years. as all these award shows have been because he's out of office. Uh, but there weren't any political jokes about Joe Biden either. He's the president now. One or two might have been appropriate. But, you know, not to keep bringing up the show, but I do hope you check it out. I mean, we did a whole segment on, and I'll talk more about this tomorrow, I guess, because I'm running short on time. But Saturday Night Live, what, we're five weeks into the Biden presidency? Zero. Zero skits about Joe Biden. I mean, it gets mentioned in, like, Weekend Update or something. Uh, and the late-night comics, you know, Colbert and Kimmel and Fallon, you know, doing occasional really lame jokes about Biden, not very much, and, and not the kind that really sin, just kind of talking about his dogs or whatever. But SNL, so if you're the guy who Saturday Night Live picked to portray Joe Biden in the new season, this guy's name is Alex Moffat, you should get one of those stimulus checks because you're out of work, baby. You're just not on the show. They can't find anything funny to do about Joe Biden. Anyway, that's the Golden Globes. Hope you had a good weekend. Uh, I'm fired up, as you can probably tell. Hope you'll subscribe. Apple iTunes on your Amazon device. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.